And welcome. You are listening to the Spiritual Exercises Podcast. This is Rachel Amaday, and it has been three or four months here of me just doing this solo, and uh, it has been such a, an incredible journey, so much fun, and has kept me in Scripture a lot. I've done more research in the last year, um, in the last couple of years, number one for my book, and then for this podcast. And guys, through this, I have learned a great deal. I've been so blessed by the process, and I am following the wise advice of some radio personalities who I've heard give advice about how to start in kind of the radio or podcast realm. They had challenged folks to do six months all by yourself without relying on someone else to entertain or educate. It has been a difficult journey, but I I'm so glad I've been doing it. So thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate you guys. Um, today, I wanted to tackle something that I have been tackling outside of this podcast quite often in my conversations with other people, whether it be um, believers who think that the Old Testament has been done away with, or whether it be you know straight up atheists or other people of other religions who you know, despise Christianity. And that seems to be uh, what I come across a lot nowadays, a lot more often than I used to about five to 10 years ago. We have people who know just enough about the Bible to know how to misuse it. And that is a huge problem for the believer who is out there trying to teach about who Yeshua really was, trying to teach the truth of God's word, trying to help people understand salvation. And then you get smacked with a big old, but doesn't God approve of rape? And let's talk about Deuteronomy. And oh, doesn't God approve of genocide? Let's talk about the nation of Israel killing people. And, you know, you get smacked with these questions questions. And how in the world are you supposed to answer these? So there are good answers. We don't have all the answers, but there are good answers. And there are ways to deal with these questions to help lead people into deeper understanding of scripture, but also help them understand context. If they're open, if they're willing, these are worthwhile conversations. And so I wanted to equip you with just a few of these today, but hopefully it will inspire you uh, to go and do your own research when those sorts of questions come up and inspire you on how to do that research. Because here's the thing, sometimes we just type things into Google and the answers that are pulled up are really not what we're looking for, or they're actually just inaccurate. They happen to be the most popular, but they're not actually right. And so you have to know who the source is, what you're looking at, is it reliable? And so we we can start digging into that a little bit more too, but I've become a much better researcher over time, but I've been a good researcher for a long time just because of my education in journalism. I really learned how to query and how to ask the right questions to get to real answers and then how to analyze and evaluate sources um, and also just to be able to read in context what you're you know looking at. Don't just take one verse and go try to figure out what it means means read the entire chapter, read the entire book, because it's going to give you a lot more information as you're going to find out today. So let's talk about 
um, our topic today. We really do have a very difficult hurdle to leap over when we're speaking to, and I'm going to call them this, you know, don't be offended. I hope they're not offended, but I, I call them the biblically illiterate. And when I say illiterate, I do not mean people who don't know about things in the Bible. I really mean those who don't understand much of what is in the Bible. Okay, there's a lot of people who know stuff is in the Bible. They know this verse is there. They know this story is there, but they really don't understand it, and they don't understand the context or the deeper meaning. There's a great difference between knowing stories in Scripture or a few verses and understanding the meaning of those stories and verses. And I really come across this issue time and again in discussions with atheists and sometimes even believers who have a hard time believing that the whole Bible is still true and relevant. The claim of the illiterate is always your God approves of rape and violence, or what about the law of a man lying with a woman? What about all of the gross evil stuff that happens in Judges? You know, we can go on and on. So in an age of information, many can simply Google worst Bible verses in scripture, and then they're going to use those against you when you're trying to talk to them about Yeshua, you're trying to talk to them about the Bible. Uh, They're going to have these hurdles that you need to be able to easily jump over. And believe me, these are easy ones to jump over once you really understand them. So let's start with one of the most difficult books in scripture. It's Judges. (laughs) If you've ever read Judges straight through, and I have read it twice through very recently, it reads like a who's who of bad guys doing unbelievably evil and bad things. There's the story of the guy who uses and abuses his concubine, and then he hands her over to be raped and abused by men all night in a town, much like the story of Lot. Um, These guys had come to the guy's door, and they were men who were wanting to sodomize another man, but... um, This guy made a trade and traded his concubine in for them doing this to the man that was with him. She ends up dying. And then he chops up her body and sends pieces of her body all over Israel. Of course, the Israelites are appalled at the wickedness that has taken place in the midst of one of their tribes. They get angry at this injustice and war ensues between the tribes of Israel because everybody's pride is getting in the way. You have in the book of Judges the story of Samson, who couldn't seem to stay within his Nazarite vow. He continually abuses his power. And while the story does end with some victory, pretty much all we do is watch Samson behave time and again through his story. And here is what the Bible says in the midst of these stories in multiple places in Judges. And this is a quote. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. These are the stories of human beings who did not follow the Lord, did not follow the Torah, and who did whatever it was they thought was right. These are warning stories of what happens when your morality is defined by you and you alone. Without wiser guidance, we really tend to warp our thinking over time, justifying all types of wickedness. Take, for example, another story from Judges, the story of Jephthah. This guy was a mighty warrior, and he ends up delivering Israel from the Amorites. But Jephthah, in the process, makes a terrible vow to the Lord. And by the way, Scripture warns against taking vows. It says, don't do it, you know, pretty much. You know, bad things happen when you don't keep your vow. He says, 
this. If you will give, and he's talking to the Lord, Jephthah's talking to the Lord. He says, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. End quote. So God does give the Ammonites into his hands and guess what comes through the door first when he returns? His beloved daughter. Jephthah, not knowing scripture had a remedy for this unbelievable problem, ends up offering up his daughter. You know, the, she she asks for some time to go and mourn her virginity and mourn her life. I mean, it's this tragic, sad, heartbreaking story. Had Jephthah read scripture and known God's laws, he would have known that he could have brought money to the temple and paid off his vow, thereby allowing his daughter to live. But according to the Bible and judges, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And look at the tragedy that ensued. By the way, are we living in times like that? I mean, does it seem like people are just doing whatever they think is right? Because I certainly think it does. And we should be learning the lessons from judges. And perhaps that's a teaching for another day. But I want what I want to point out is judges is not a story of a bunch of people that God approves of. This is a warning story of what happens when people lose their moral compass, when they decide to do what is right in their own eyes, when they become prideful and believe that they know better than the Lord. When they don't go to scripture to give them their moral direction, people just start doing whatever they want. And in our culture, they do whatever they want and they call it love. You know, oh, well, you know, God loves me, so I can do this. Or I don't really have to pay attention to God's laws or what's in the Old Testament. Jesus loved me so much, he did away with those things. Yikes, that comes up a lot. Or, you know, I'm doing this out of love, so it can't be bad. It's all about love. No, this is still people doing what is right in their own eyes, and it ends up in tragedy. Let's head to another difficult passage. By the way, you're going to, before we move on from Judges, people bring up these stories from Judges all the time as, you know, some sort of strange wrecking ball against having faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And really, all you have to say is these are just stories of how people behave when they don't follow God's law. And that's what the book of Judges is teaching us time and time again. These are not things God's, God approves of. This is God telling you what happens when you don't follow him. It's a warning. Let's head to another difficult passage. Deuteronomy 22, 28 through 29 says this. If a man finds a young woman who is a virgin who is not betrothed, and he seizes her and lies with her, and they are found out, then the man who lay with her shall give to the young woman's father 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has humbled her. He shall not be permitted to divorce her all his days. Okay, so people interpret this verse as if a guy rapes a woman, rapes a virgin, and they're found out, then he just has to pay off the dad. What a horrible law that would be, right? That would just, we would all be infuriated if that's what Deuteronomy 22, 28 through 29 really means. But as we often do, we have a translational problem here in the English with the term seizes, Okay, so let's discuss this. Many would say, again, this word seizes is about rape. 
But this is not discussing rape. As Greg Bonson has written, the Hebrew word tapas, which means lay hold of her, emphasized above, where the word seizes, simply means to take hold of something, grasp it in hand, to capture or seize something. It's the verb used for handling the harp and flute. In Genesis 4.21, handling the sword in Ezekiel 21.11 and 30.21, handling the sickle in Jeremiah 50.16, the shield in Jeremiah 46.9, the oars in Ezekiel 27.29, and the bow in Amos 2.15. It is likewise used for taking God's name, Proverbs 30 verse 9, or dealing with the law of God, Jeremiah 2.8. Joseph's garment was grasped. In Genesis 39, 12, grasped is the word for seize here as well, Um, even as Moses took the two tablets of the law. So this is also the word for took when Moses took the two tablets. So the Hebrew verb to handle, grasp, capture, take does not indicate anything about force. Okay, so this is not implying rape. This concept to me is more about stealing something or taking something. Okay, so in this case of Deuteronomy 22, 28 through 29, he, you know, took her virginity. He laid with this young woman who's a virgin. Um, This does not mean rape occurred. It simply means they had intercourse. And the requirement here actually for this act exceeds the current day's requirement of a man who has intercourse with a virgin outside of marriage. This law is, in fact, far more protective of women than how we treat women today because this is not about rape. Okay, and we we know that the Bible does not condone rape. We look at what happens with Dinah, who was the sister of the 12 sons of Jacob, when she is raped. A few of her brothers go to avenge her, and they do an unbelievable deed to do so. I mean, they they take their anger out on an entire town of men. And their father's incredibly angry with them for doing this. But there's no other real physical punishment meted out at the time, likely because, you know, dad understood. Rape was wrong, and it was wicked what happened to Dinah, and their anger was, you know, understandable. We also know, because we have Deuteronomy 22, 25 through 27, we know that God does not condone rape because these verses say this. Um, well, I actually don't have the quote in front of me. Um, I have some of the quote. But basically, it describes a man meeting a betrothed woman in a secluded area. The Bible describes like if he meets her in an open field. If he rapes her, then according to these verses, he has to die. And scripture says this about the woman. I quote, but you shall do nothing to the young woman. She's committed no offense punishable by death, for this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor. Okay, so this man who has raped this woman, uh, he has to die. So we know the Bible does not condone rape, and it even has it in Deuteronomy in the next verses that a man who rapes a woman in a field, you know, a betrothed woman in a secluded area, that guy gets the death penalty. So the Bible obviously isn't condoning rape. We have to understand 
um, especially with some of the more confusing verses. There are lots of different translations. I would suggest you go and read them. And then, you know, go to the simple source first. That's okay. You can use Strong's uh, Dictionary, which will give you the original Hebrew word and will give you meanings of the word. Or, you know, do some research with some great Hebraic scholars um, or someone like Dennis Prager, who has some books out on uh, Exodus and Leviticus and Genesis, where there's some deep knowledge of what the scriptures are and what they mean, um, because sometimes there's context or there's sayings, Hebrew sayings, there's um, all sorts of social things going on that we're missing because of our translation. We do have a lot of problems with our English translation, and that's unfortunate. But if we know that God is good and God loves marriage and that he has said and commanded that sexual activity is for a married man and woman that's foundational in the law, then we know that God hates it when that is ignored and rape completely ignores that really important, protective, beautiful marital relationship. And so we know that God doesn't approve of it. And so there's multiple places where you can show um, your your skeptical friends and neighbors um, how God obviously does not approve of rape and how these verses have been taken out of context. Now let's discuss uh, one that has come up many, many times, even among people in my own family. What about how God commands the nation of Israel to utterly destroy multiple peoples in the Old Testament? This seems cruel and horrific to us, right? And there are theories, there are theories abound on this issue. But I want to start with just a few questions. Okay, before we go judging God, I always tell people before you go judging God, let's ask ourselves some few a few questions. Number 1, what do you really know about the peoples that God destroyed? Cuz there is some stuff that in scripture that gives us a clue into who these people were, and I'm not so certain that you're going to like it. But have you really gone and taken a look? Number 1, Number two, how about this? Now that science has shown that people carry cellular memory of past generations, can it be expected that a nomadic people like Israel would be able to effectively take on women and children of nations who sacrificed children to gods openly, who tortured children to appease those gods, and who committed heinous crimes and activities to their gods for hundreds of years? Are you expecting too much from that nation? Probably. According to scripture, here's another question. Um, God gave the Canaanites and Amorites 400 years to change, longer than America has been a nation. They did not change. And so according to the Lord, their time was up. Are we better judges than God? And do we have that sort of omniscient understanding of all things and all peoples that would be required for us to judge God in this? Well, I would say we don't. But even with our limited understanding, we can take a look at some of the peoples that the nation of Israel obliterated and start to really put this story together, uh, maybe in a different way than you ever have in the past. So um to start, we find discussions of the Rephaim 
or the Anakim in scripture and among these peoples. Now, the Rephaim or the Anakim were descendants of giants, likely the Nephilim that were on the earth at the time of Noah. And remember, the Nephilim are the children of the fallen angels and the human beings. And so we have hybrid peoples who were giant and who were likely different. Okay, these were gigantic people. King Og, according to scripture, was 15 feet tall. Okay, this is the king of one of the peoples that we see the nation of Israel come across. These were mammoth beings, okay? How in the world did they get so big? Again, these might not have been fully human. It's likely these were Nephilim leftover half-human, half-fallen angels. They're not just people like we know today. More than that, when the nation of Israel spied out the land of Canaan and came back with the report of giants, they mentioned this strange, there's this strange phrase, and I'm going to quote it here. They said this, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people that we saw in it are of great height, end quote. So the people they saw listed in that same chapter were the Amalekites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, and the Canaanites. All of these people were beyond human. More than that, there's the concept here that the land devours its inhabitants. It's a line that implies that the grave was never satisfied in the land while these people were there. There are some scholars who even suggest that the giants were having to eat people in this land, eat each other in this land, because there was not enough food for all of them given their size and food requirements. If you think about what a 15-foot human requires just in calorie intake every day, it's absurd. If you put a regular six-foot human up against a 15-foot human, you'd basically come up to like above his knee, all right? And the Israelites were likely smaller than our average man. So they were tiny compared to these things. What was happening in the land of Israel was evil and wild. It was wicked. You know, something was happening there that God did not want to exist any longer, especially in his land. Okay, so because we also see through these stories, the nation of Israel give mercy to so many people who end up living among them, even against the will of God. We have to conclude that the peoples God commanded to be utterly destroyed were destroyed for very, very, very good reasons. Reasons that we can't 100% put together, but we can kind of cobble together given the language and terminology used to describe these peoples, not to mention the gods that they worshipped and how they behaved. And so whether you like it or not, God deemed that those people needed to be ended. And again, a lot of scholars are starting to think that these weren't fully human. These were some sort of hybrid person that we may see reemerge. Actually, in the very end times, we may see hybrid people. I mean, look at what Elon Musk is doing, right? Hybrid people. Maybe we're going to be hybrid with computers and be superhuman that way. But superhuman people like Goliath or King Og of Bashan, who are capable of doing more than just what is normally human. But obviously, God was not a fan of this. And so we, we should probably think about that. Be careful about messing with our humanity as we move forward into 
the next technological revolutions. Um, But hopefully these kind of new ideas help you in your discussions with non-believers and other people who don't understand scripture. They know those verses are there, but they don't actually understand what they mean because they haven't read the whole book of Judges in context. They haven't read the whole book of Deuteronomy. They haven't read all of what's happening with... um, the nation of Israel retaking their land in the, in the book of Joshua. And so because they don't have context and understanding, they're using these verses to disprove scripture, the scriptural God, the Jesus that we know and love. But if you understand these scriptures better, you can have a better answer and have better conversations with people. Let me encourage you, whenever these sorts of questions come up, do this level of research, go write down what you find, put it to memory, put these verses to memory, and start to understand them at this deeper level. And you know what's kind of fun about these answers is they actually help the Bible to come alive a little bit more, right? You you know, it's really a good thing that we have flawed beings throughout scripture that are described because we can see through stories of incredibly flawed people like King David or like Paul in the New Testament that God can still redeem even the most flawed human. That is such a message, right? That is the gospel that God will bring his family back together one way or another. And he did it through the blood of Yeshua. That's the gospel. That's the, that's the good side of the coin for anyone who's asking these questions. Do you know that the Bible does not tell stories about perfect people? The Bible tells stories about fallen people. What happens when you disobey the Lord? What happens when you do evil and wickedness? What happens to nations who are wicked? This is the story of human history. The Bible should be trusted because of its unbelievable accuracy in this regard. This is the most psychologically sound book on the planet. And so, you know, I mean, even lately, I've been looking at how God as a parent deals with his children and how he parents us and how merciful he is to us, but how he is also very strict sometimes when it comes right down to our life and our salvation. He will do anything to make sure that you're in his kingdom and he will allow a lot of pain into your life in order for you to get there. And I think we have to kind of as parents, we that's tough. Like we need to kind of understand that, that at some point we have to let our kids suffer their own consequences. At some point when they're really young, we have to give them real consequences for bad behavior. Because when you grow up in real life, there's a lot of things that God's going to ask you to do that you don't think are fun. But if you do them, you're going to receive blessing. And if you don't do them, you're going to miss out on blessing. And so teaching your children to be disciplined and to do things even when they don't want to can produce such beauty. I just see a lot of parenting posts where parents are like, you got to learn how to make everything fun. Then they'll always want to do it. But as you and I both know in life, not everything is fun. You you can make a lot. You can make cleaning fun. Sure. You can make washing your hands fun. Absolutely. You can make all sorts of things fun. But there will come a time in life where you have to do something that is just plain hard. And if you haven't learned the discipline, if you haven't learned how to do that, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. And so it's our job as parents to toughen our kids up in some ways, to get them ready and prepared for the world, to get them ready to say no to what looks fun that could end up being a disaster for them, and to say yes to 
righteous living. And, you know, we should take our cue from how the Lord deals with us. Um, mostly he's just a big ball of mercy. I'm sorry. I'd, we we just told all these stories about how the nation of Israel utterly destroyed the Canaanites and the Amorites and, you know, all these different peoples. But God is so merciful. You know, he gave the Amorites 400 years to change. That's a long time. God is patient and gracious with us, and he is so loving. And that's what I hope as you go out to share, and this this is my hope to you in this next year, in 2023, there is nothing more important than your relationship with the Lord and your relationship with others. And those two things should be hand in hand. You can't cut God out from any part of your life, so don't. He is your all in all. And I hope that you get to share that with others. And I hope you get to show the love of God and the mercy that we are we see throughout Scripture of this great, incredible God who adores us and who did so much to rescue us. So that was my teaching for you. I hope this helps you get started in your own research and gives you some tools when you're having those difficult conversations starting this next year. I expect you will be, as I will be as well. Uh, I will be back next week with another Bible study. Till next time.